This is Draco Malfoy and the Talon Brand, Part Five of the Mirror of Isidaru series by Star Bridget, Chapter Thirteen, Fangs. Sanguinary. Draco was hauled from under the covers, Severus's face looming over his in the candlelight. Draco Lucius Malfoy, do you have any explanation for why I just had to resort to blood magic to open the curtains of your bed? Severus's palm was indeed cut. He cast Volnerus an entel with a humming noise and closed it at once. What? Draco said, staring up blearily. I value my privacy. Have you packed for Christmas yet? Severus asked impatiently. The other boys were stirring, poking their heads out of their curtains. Somewhat, Draco said, trying to guess what could be going on. It matters not. Mr. Knott, you will pack Mr. Malfoy's trunk for him tomorrow, and I will get it to him. Mr. Knott is competent to handle any presents. Get dressed. Hurry. Draco snatched up his uniform and robes and ran for the bathroom, mind racing. Something's happened to Sirius. And the last time I saw them, all I did was scream at him and Remus for not loving me enough. What's wrong with me? He raced back out in record time, finding Severus annoyed by anxious questions. No, Mr. Crab, I will not tell you what is going on. No, Mr. Not. Draco is not in any danger. No, Mr. Goyle, this will not impact your Quidditch team. I am sure Mr. Zabini is capable of running the final practices of the semester. There you are. Get your wand and go. Draco dived onto his bed, grabbing not just his wand, but the other thing he kept under his pillow, the moonstone dagger. Severus said nothing, just dragged him out. The fire was out in the common room fireplace. The night silent as the grave. Severus didn't offer any explanation, even once they were up the stairs of the dungeons and going up more. Where are we going? Draco had to rush to keep pace. He had rarely, if ever, seen his godfather move so quickly. The headmaster's office, Severus said curtly, and Draco's stomach flipped. What did I do? Draco stopped in the middle of the staircase. Why am I being treated like a criminal? Was it to do with blood magic, against Umbridge, or Harry last year, or the time travel somehow? He didn't think he could get dragged to the headmaster's office in the middle of the night just for having kissed the boy who lived, but it was a possibility to consider. If you had done something wrong, Severus hissed ominously, I would not have had you bring your wand. There is a crisis in the Order of the Phoenix. Behave as such. When they arrived at the entrance to Dumbledore's office, they were not the only ones, with McGonagall leading Fred, George and Ginny, who weren't even dressed, and looked like they'd been woken by a horde of Dementors coming after them. Ron! Ron is Ron all right? Draco grabbed onto Fred's arm, losing his head. Fred didn't shake him off, just pulled him with them. It's our father, George said, and Draco had some of the guiltiest relief he had ever felt when he got inside and saw the bright flame of Ron's head unhurt. Ron! Draco exclaimed, running over and throwing his arms around him. It was a mark of how shaken up Ron must be that he didn't squirm and laugh at the show of affection. Instead, Ron's hands went up, trembling to grab onto Draco's shoulders, as if to ground him on something stronger than himself. Draco remembered Neville telling him, You're the one who makes us feel brave. Harry, what's going on? Ginny asked. Harry was also there, looking much the worse for wear. He was a different person than the one Draco had just kissed, as if he had suffered some terrible blow or struck one. 
He had the two-way mirror he used with Sirius gripping it, so tight his knuckles were white. Professor McGonagall says you saw Dad get hurt. Your father has been injured in the course of his work for the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore explained. Draco racked his memory. Mr Weasley hadn't died in the Blue Loop, so this was either non-fatal or new. He has been taken to St Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries. I am sending you back to Grimmauld, which is much more convenient for the hospital than the burrow. You will meet your mother there. Ron's grip tightened on the collar of Draco's robes. As he had in the Chamber of Secrets, Draco reached down and grabbed Ron's hand. How are we going? Fred asked. Flu powder? No, Dumbledore said. Flu powder is not safe at the moment. The network is being watched. You will be taking a port key. He gestured towards a kettle on his desk. No try was at cup, but it would do the job in a pinch. We are just waiting for Sirius to answer. Harry, Sirius's voice came from the mirror. Did I hear you calling? It's the middle of the night you woke up, Remus. Harry handed it to Dumbledore without a word. Sirius, Dumbledore said gravely, Arthur Weasley has been attacked. He was brought to St Mungo's. With your permission, we'd like to send the Weasley children and their mother to meet at Grimald. Of course, Sirius's voice agreed, shocked but determined. Anything we can do. Harry and Draco are coming home early for the break. They will all be arriving by Port Key shortly. Please lower any wards to them. Done, said Sirius. And just like that, the swift interchange between adults ended. Not a second too soon, as almost immediately after, flames appeared at the centre of the office, lovely and golden, and leaving a phoenix feather floating in the air behind them. It is Fawkes's warning, Dumbledore caught the feather. Professor Umbridge must know you're out of your beds. Minerva, Severus, go and head her off. Tell her any story. McGonagall obeyed, but Severus lingered, a question in his eyes for Draco. It's all right, Draco said with his bravest smile. Happy Christmas, Severus. Severus nodded and raced out after McGonagall. Come here, then, Dumbledore ordered, and quickly, before anyone else joins us. They gathered with no time for questions. You have all used a portkey before? Good. On the count of three, then. One, two, three. The last thing that Draco wanted after last year was to be awoken and thrust immediately into using a portkey, but there was no help for it, and the blue loop couldn't be taken for granted. If Draco caused more delay than in the original timeline, for all he knew, that could be the difference between Ron's father dying or living. He had learned in the graveyard that people could die differently this time around, as if Wormtail's life had been traded for diggeries, and Mr Weasley's was not a life too easy to trade. The portkey arrived to the sound of Creature's irritating voice complaining, Back again, the blood traitor brats! Is it true their father's dead? Sirius lunged, but Remus pulled him back, both in their nightclothes looking frightened. Draco couldn't hear what Remus was saying over the rushing in his own ears. He was remembering what Creature had done to Dobby this summer. In the face of upheaval he hadn't been able to predict, his temper snapped. One less traitor in these halls, then, Creature sneered. Good riddance. Langlock! Draco yelled and Creature's tongue glued itself to the roof of his mouth. Turned out, as suspected, that curse worked on house elves. Oh! Ginny cried out, scooting back on the floor at the unfamiliar sight. Fred and George also recoiled, 
but Draco casting Langlock was such an old sight to the others none so much as blinked. Draco! Remus embraced both him and Harry. Take the curse off Queecher and send him away. We don't have time to deal with him. Fine! Draco rolled his eyes and whirled on Creature. I've had enough of you, you hear me? One more word like that. One more blood traitor or mud blood out of you in my presence. Ever. And your tongue is locked permanently. Finite incantatum. Out. Creature fled past the hanging red lights and Holly, not daring another word. No one looked very sorry for Creature, though Ron gave a mirthless laugh that made Draco's chest hurt to hear. No one tell Hermione he did that to a house elf. We'll never hear the end of it. Maybe this sort of thing was why Remus and Sirius were more eager to have Harry as their son. Harry, what's going on? Remus asked. Harry got an evasive look on his face, turning to stare at the Christmas tree instead. A faded blue-green decorated all in golden baubles and red and gold lights. The glow of the lights off Harry's face showed the strain there all too well. Harry's scarlet pyjamas were stiff with dry sweat, like he'd been woken not by a McGonagall but a nightmare. Tell us everything, Remus asked, in that quiet, reasonable way impossible not to obey. I was asleep, Harry said. And I had a dream, but it wasn't an ordinary dream. I think it came from Voldemort. I dreamed Mr Weasley was attacked by a giant snake. Nagini? Draco gasped, and covered his mouth when all the eyes went on him. You know her. She... she was in the graveyard with us. I... I don't know. I didn't uh, see it clearly. Harry said, voice going evasive, and he had never been a good liar. It was stupefying that he could be hedging the truth at a time like this. Anyway, it was bad. Mr Weasley was sleeping on the floor and the snake, maybe it was that one, the snake was on a mission, but Mr Weasley was under an invisibility cloak and then he woke up and saw the snake and drew his wand, so the snake just lunged on him, breaking his ribs. It was tearing all into his body. There was so much blood. Ginny covered her face with her hands. Fred hugged her between him and George while Ron grabbed for Draco's hand again. I woke everyone up screaming and Neville got Professor McGonagall. She took me to Headmaster Dumbledore and they found out he really had been attacked. I know what it was. It, it was this connection I've had with Voldemort since the graveyard. My scar's been hurting. As soon as they had more details, the Weasleys were naturally raring to take action against any common sense. First they wanted their mother, then they wanted to run right to St Mungo's. Even after Sirius and Remus explained Mr Weasley had been hurt on order business, and it would be compromising for them to show up before it was publicly known. What does that matter? George argued. It matters because we don't want to draw attention to the fact that Harry is having visions of things that are happening hundreds of miles away, Sirius argued back. So it was. That connection to Voldemort he'd been screaming about to Dumbledore. Have you any idea what the Ministry would make of that information? Fred and George looked unconvinced, while Ron's grip tightened on Draco's hand. Draco interrupted curtly. Shut your mouths. Don't any of you know how to keep your heads in a crisis? Is there anything you can do? Are you all trained medi-wizards? And that explains why the twins got so few OWLs. Please. As if you'd have been around anything a hundredth as dangerous as I have. You'd have learned, if you can't help, stay out of the way or you'll just make things worse. An impressive silence greeted Draco's pronouncement, before Remus took a more empathetic tack. I can't imagine how all of you must be feeling right now. This is your father, but he's in the hands of the best doctors money can buy, and Draco's right. At this stage, with him safe at St Mungo's and in, in treatment, we wouldn't be able to see him right away, we would just be in the way. So I know it's hard, but please, try and stay put with us and wait. Fine, Fred muttered. 
but he and George looked still ready to make a break for it and try to flew to St Mungo's. Come on, we're going upstairs, Draco ordered. Now! He marched them one by one in a line up the stairs, past where the elf heads had used to hang up to his room. He found it as he had left it, like someone had done charms or dusting, pictures and furniture intact. Ron stared hard at a Polaroid of Draco and Hermione at the Muggle World Cup final, both proudly displaying yellow-green Brazil souvenir cups they had forgotten at the stadium. Draco could see why Ron was staring, even aside from the unguarded prettiness of Hermione's smile. The careless joy on that beaming face belonged to a different world than the one they had fallen into. Fallen, thanks to Draco's inability to kill Pettigrew just one year sooner. But Draco couldn't afford to get in his head right now. He had to seem so strong it shamed the rest of them. Okay, here we are, he said crisply. We're staying up here tonight. No exceptions. There's a bathroom over there, so no excuse for leaving the room to take a piss. Who put you in charge? Fred scoffed. The past, Draco said. A strange enough answer to get their attention. That is, the fact that I, unlike the rest of you, know actual Death Eaters and how they operate. And I'm telling you, this isn't going to be fatal. An awkward silence reigned, before Ginny seemed to rally herself for the other's sake. I've never even been in here before. I like the colours. No, you have. We saw it once when we first got to Grimold. George said with a look at Fred. Remember what I said then? I said, Fred said, with a smile more for the memory of laughter than any laughter now, that it was a shame Draco was gay, because this was a room that would draw in girls like a half-price sale on sleek easies at glad rags. Gay or not, Ginny isn't staying in Draco's bed. Who said she'd be in my bed? Draco drawled. She'd have to fight for that. It's bound to be a heavily contested position. He tossed his head and wished he'd had the time to comb his hair. Its wavy tangle spoiled the gesture's effect. The realisation how bad his hair looked made him cast a nervous glance at Harry. It seemed the near death of one of his best friend's fathers wasn't enough to stop Draco worrying what Harry thought of his hair. Sirius and Remus will bring up mattresses for all of us, you'll see. From what? Telepathy? Fred asked sceptically. His room was bluer back then. Just wait. Ceruleum and flammare, Draco cast. The old wreath of blue flames came up around the walls, bluebell flames in their corners rising in memory of where they had once been. When Draco glanced towards deathly silent Harry, the flames at least made his troubled eyes soften. As if on cue, in came Sirius and Remus, levitating mattresses and lined the floor with them. There was only room for three with leaving space to walk, but with Draco's bed there and most of them family, Remus said it should be enough. When Fred complained they weren't here for a bloody sleepover, Remus said he didn't think any of them should be alone right now, in a tone so professorial that even the twins didn't dare oppose him. Remus used a neat spell to make up beds for them on the floor. With sheets, pillows and blankets, Sirius levitated up in a second trip. Sirius pulled Harry out into the hallway for a presumed godfatherly round of psychiatric intervention. Surely now would not be the time to propose adoption, though the thought soured Draco's stomach. Meanwhile, Remus gathered the Weasleys for stern warnings, and Draco went to change to pyjamas. He was the only one who'd bothered to get dressed for the trip. When he came back, Sirius and Remus had left, and the Gryffindors had worked out that as the girl, Ginny got her own bed. Then Fred and George had one, and then Ron and Harry. But Draco caught Harry looking up longingly towards Draco's taller bed. Come up and sit up here for a minute, Draco said. Harry's eyes focused meaningfully, only to go distant once he realised Draco was beckoning literally everyone. Oh, look. George sniped, the Death Eater expert on his throne, about to tell us why you know better than us just because you can block 27 stunners. 
If I couldn't block twenty-seven stunners, Draco counted, would you have listened to me and come up here in the first place? No one had a quick retort, so Draco acted as if that proved his point. Now listen, your father is going to be fine. You can't know that, Ginny said, in a tone like the tears she had been fighting back were coming closer, with all the hustling about done. I can know, Draco said patiently, because it's Nagini, and if she wants to kill someone, she eats them after. Harry, you didn't actually see Nagini eating Mr Weasley's flesh, did you? No. Harry buried his face in his hands, looking unaccountably guilty. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Harry's agitation was contagious. Bloody hell, Draco, you trying to creep us all out? Ron asked testily, patting Harry on the back. How would you even know that? Is it something about that type of snake? No, it's about Nagini, Draco emphasised. Granted, he couldn't explain why he knew about her, but a person shouldn't have to watch a hideous monster eat that many half-dead bodies without the right to claim some authority on the subject. My father told me stories about the First War when I was growing up. Okay. Did he ever say anything about our uncles? Fred asked suddenly, on our mum's side, the Pruitt brothers, Fabian and Gideon Pruitt. The Talon wand seemed almost to pulse in Draco's pocket. Fred may calm down, he's not like his father, Ron said, with a casual confidence that made Draco feel almost genuinely strong. You know what Draco tried to do in that graveyard? No, I know, Fred said. His face was eerie without a trace of humour, halfway to a corpse. I just want to know if anyone in your family, if they ever talked about them, was your father one of the ones who killed them? Fred flopped back against Draco's pillows, and George began to play with his twin sleeve absently. They kind of sounded, I don't know, like Fred and I from stories, Mum told. She doesn't talk of them much, but... I did think they sounded like you and George, Ginny exclaimed, all funny and goofy and super close, laughing all the time. Yeah, they did, George agreed, wonder at what point they stopped laughing. Perhaps after a spell cast by the wand in Draco's pocket, but then, everyone in this room probably knew that already. Come on, Weasley clan, Draco said, trying for irreverence. It's not time to start reviewing the family graveyard. Your father's not going to need his own plot. So save the burial funds for a rainy day. You can't promise that. Fred took out his wand to dim some of the flames. The light over his face faded with them. Maybe now, but not forever. He's a member of the Order. It's a war now, which means any of us could die. Don't say that, mate. Ron said immediately, but Ginny sat up straighter, leaning in. It's true, though, isn't it? It's weird, the twins being serious, Draco lamented. Stop it, it's freaky. Makes me feel like the world is really ending. George came to his twins' defence. You just told us how lucky we should feel. The massive flesh-eating snake Harry saw buying our dad didn't seem to want to eat him. Harry, if you're holding anything back. I'm not, Harry said too vehemently to possibly not be. You're being so quiet, Ginny fretted, and reached over to squeeze his hand. Her arm stretched across Draco to make the motion. Draco was tempted to whack it. Was this it? A shared moment of fear, thrown together in the dramatic circumstances of war. Was Harry meant to comfort her and begin their love story? Draco wanted to chuck them out of his room and shove them down the stairs at the thought. It's true, though, Fred said, and let his brother take his hand, but didn't hold it in return. Any of us could get killed at any time. The rest of us could just get woken in the middle of the night like this, to be told. Any night. It's lucky none of us are dead already. The odds would say not everyone in this room is going to survive the war. Draco hadn't bought his draft of peace. He wondered if there was such a thing's draft of war. If there was, it felt like Fred had just forced it down his throat. He wished there was a way he could excise the knowledge that Fred would die from his head. It's just a question, Fred went on, of who out of all of us will be the one to die. Cut it out, 
Draco snapped. None of us is going to die. Ron poked at Draco's arm. You mean it? How can you be so confident? None of you will die, because I'll protect you. I promise. Can't be everywhere all the time, Ginny said, and George ruffled her hair. That's what your big brothers are for. George said fondly, but Draco was undeterred. Watch me, Draco said defiantly. You'll think you're doomed, about to get chewed up by some massive hungry serpent, or tortured to death by that noseless, shark-looking snake fucker. What? Ginny frowned. He means you know who, Ron explained, more used to Draco's vernacular. You'll think you're done for, preparing to meet your maker with that irrational Gryffindor courage that won't ever run from a fight. And what do you know? I'll be there. I'll save you. So don't say that. I'm too powerful. No one in this damn room is ever going to die. Harry sat up at the bottom of the bed, dragged out of his stupor. Everyone dies eventually. "'Nope,' Draco said nonchalantly. "'Not us.' "'Natural causes, though,' Ginny said logically. "'There's old age.' "'Not us,' Draco insisted. "'We're never getting old.' There was real humour in Fred's voice again. "'So, no one in this room is ever going to die, Draco. That's your promise.' Exactly. If you doubt it, well, that's just showing the incredibly limited nature of your Gryffindor intellect. The others were laughing, tension broken. Somehow, all of Draco's blustering had made it feel like Arthur Weasley had gone from dead to alive again. Just us? Ginny asked. Something so naive in her voice it was like she almost believed him. No? Draco said impatiently. Of course not. Hermione, Luna, Neville, they're never dying either. I'm not having it, so that's the immortal ones. We can fight a war, yes, but you can all rest secure in the knowledge that Draco Malfoy has declared you immune from death. Even if his bluster couldn't keep his vision from turning the blue flames red over Fred Weasley's head, a target forming, day of reckoning coming closer, but he could pretend he couldn't see it. So that's... George counted on his fingers. Eight of us, then. Four Weasleys, then Draco, Harry, Hermione, Luna. Four not. We're the ones who can never die. Ginny laughed louder, kicking out her foot at him. You forgot Neville, you asshole. Oh, no... Fred said in faux seriousness. We have to debate whether Neville should be allowed admittance to this hallowed group. It's like a subgroup of the DA. Very harsh-harsh, very exclusive. And I don't know if Neville is making the grade. No, he's making it. Draco said happily. What, because he fancies your cousin? Ron asked. And both twins' ears peaked up at the sound of gossip. You think that because they kissed under the mistletoe? George asked eagerly. Ginny rolled her eyes. No, because Neville's obsessed with her. So speaks the romantic expert. Fred teased. Our little sister, the player. Oh, is Michael Corner? Broken his heart yet, man-eater? Sharp! Ginny laughed, and fraternal shoving broke out in spades. Draco saw Harry look up at the red-headed knot and smile, though just an observer to the companionable silliness that had replaced the dread. Do you really think the mistletoe was magically binding? Ron mused. No one actually tried to step out, did they? I mean, Dobby put up that sign, but... Harry shot a sharp look at Draco. Draco hoped that look didn't give anything away. They hadn't actually discussed whether they would tell their friends what had happened. Draco had just assumed they wouldn't. He didn't know why. Maybe because he didn't think they'd t told how he pulled Harry through the cup portkey, a cursed kiss on that hell-fire night. But mistletoe was just mistletoe mistletoe set up by Dobby, which suspiciously only seemed to target Dobby's friends who were crushing on each other. They'd all been had. Dobby should be ashamed of himself. Draco resolved to buy Dobby something extra nice for his birthday. The twins kept teasing Ginny about Corner, with Ron indignant in the background and Harry watching with distant, vacant eyes. 
Eventually they seemed to tire themselves out enough gossiping to doze off, except for Harry. When Draco was woken by footsteps on the stairs, he lifted his head to see Harry already sitting up, eyes wide open. He didn't seem to have slept for a minute, and he slid out of bed beside a still-sleeping Ron to pad out. Draco followed him and they came face to face with a frantic-looking Mrs Weasley. Her usually friendly, ruddy face was dead pale, but her gaze relaxed with maternal affection when she saw Harry. Draco stepped aside to let her catch Harry in one of the warmest hugs he had ever seen, only to suppress a squawk when her arm shot out and dragged him in with him. He's going to be all right, she said weakly, her eyes full of indescribable relief, and Draco was suddenly reminded what her boggart had been. Draco wondered what his own mother's boggart would be. Can we go and see him? Harry whispered. Ron, Ginny, the twins? Mrs Weasley said, anxiety not gone from her voice. Look, Draco said, and opened up the door. He waved a hand to make the blue lights shine a bit brighter, and the Patronus blue hue made the four heads of fire-red hair stand out like phoenix feathers in the night. Oh, Mrs Weasley said, hand over her mouth, relieved by the sight of her children safe and sleeping. Oh, there they are, all four of them. Oh, and they're sleeping, the dears. Bless them, oh, bless them. She grabbed onto the wall for balance, and Draco wished he knew her well enough to offer some form of reassurance. Should I wake them up? Harry offered. They'd want to know. Fred and George were all for charging the flu and forcing their way in when we got here. Draco had to stop them. No, let them sleep. You must all be exhausted, she sighed. We can tell them when they wake up. We might know more then, but he is going to be all right. We can all go and see him later. Bill's sitting with him now. He's going to take the morning off work. Are you all right, Mrs Weasley? Harry asked, radiating concern. She let him take her arm, both seeming to hold each other steady. Then they looked in again at the sprawled forms of the Weasley children, peaceful in sleep. Fred and George curled together. Mrs Weasley's face took on a shaky, exhausted smile. Don't worry about me, she said brusquely. I'd best go off and get some rest myself. You boys too. Tell them when they wake me if you like. Just sleep now if you can. You hear me? Yes, ma'am, Harry said. She gave him and Draco both another firm hug before going. Harry watched her leave, then quietly closed the door and sat down on the stairs. Draco sat down beside him and took out his wand. You brought that? Harry marvelled. "'sitting without even his glasses, and Draco shrugged. "'Should I make a light?' Draco offered, and Harry shook his head. "'You should try and get back to sleep,' Harry said, gaze already distant again. "'You were sleeping before. I couldn't. "'Maybe I can now that I know Mr Weasley is.' "'He didn't seem able to finish that sentence. "'What?' "'It was a very strange conversation they had ended up having,' "'as their first after they had kissed under mistletoe. "'Worried what you'll see when you dream?' "'Harry shuddered, arms wrapping around himself, "'and even in the dark, with only the slightest blue glow from inside, "'Draco could make out the colour of Harry's eyes. "'Draco, I... I didn't tell you, did I? "'I told Ron right after it happened. "'I wasn't... I wasn't watching that snake. "'Nagini, you said.' I wasn't watching it attack Mr Weasley. I was the snake. I was inside it, doing it. Harry said this like some great guilty revelation, but it wasn't. It was borderline uninteresting in such a generally heightened context. Yeah, that makes sense. You've been experiencing flashes of Voldemort's emotions, thoughts, feeling them yourself. Makes sense. You'd see an experience through his eyes. In this case, his snakes. They've likely got some psychic connection as well. Be weirder for you not to see it like that. Harry relaxed at Draco's lack of horror. Like back in third year, whenever Draco told him it was normal to feel as he did about Dementors. Merlin. Harry had far too many awful things happen to him to also be this hard on himself. I... you think so? Draco nodded, but Harry just hunched over more, 
pulling his feet up to a higher step and resting his chin on his knees. Draco, I... I also... I haven't told anyone this, but... I had this other thought. When we were taking the port key, I looked at Dumbledore and... I wanted to hurt him. A lot. My scar was burning so hot. I hated him so much and I wanted my fangs in him. Harry was speaking to essentially Dumbledore's murderer here. If he was looking for condemnation, he was barking up the wrong tree. Oh, definitely flashes from the Dark Lord, Draco yawned, and Harry looked torn between relief and exasperation. I just told you I wanted to kill Professor Dumbledore, and you yawn. Join the bloody club. Harry, Draco swallowed back another yawn. You're getting thoughts from Snakeface. He hates Dumbledore and wants to kill him. Your scar means connection with Snakeface, and it hurt when you thought it. Mystery solved, yeah. What a shock. But Dumbledore, he... Harry lowered his voice and leaned closer, eyes beseeching for understanding. I have been angry at him this year. So angry after he ignored me at the trials, and he's been so cold, like I did something wrong. I've been angry at everything, but especially him. It's like Voldemort is bleeding through sometimes, melding with me, like the bad parts of him are becoming part of me. With Dumbledore, I felt. Abandoned? Draco offered. Betrayed. It's not like it's something I couldn't have thought. Do you have fangs, Harry? Draco asked impatiently. Or is that a common metaphor your thoughts tend to take? Harry's face went open, first from surprise and then sheepishness, but Draco wasn't done. No, seriously, I'm asking. Open your mouth. Not a request. That's an order. Open your mouth for me. Okay. Teeth forward. Draco reached out, fingers drawing over Harry's cheek, and traced his thumb slowly over Harry's teeth, the top and then bottom row. Let's see. Normal tooth. Normal tooth. Normal tooth. Not a fang. Not a fang. Yeah, let's see. Also not a fang. Shut up. Harry breathed, nervous laughter in his voice. But Draco kept up until he had made his point far more than necessary. He liked touching Harry's mouth. Yeah, Harry, got to say not seeing any of these fangs, Draco said, pulling his hand away. But Harry caught it and held it against his cheek. You think maybe it's more likely that it was the venomous man-eating snake you just had in your head? Harry pulled the back of Draco's hand to his lips and kissed it, not saying a word. Draco's stomach plummeted, body suddenly suffused in a different tiredness. The exhaustion of holding out against so much temptation for so long, it felt like only a matter of time before he had to give in to it. He could. No one else was likely awake. There were empty rooms at Grimald. He could take Harry down to one and kiss him again like what had been only hours ago, even if it felt much longer. He could do more, if Harry wanted, and he had the feeling that, yes, Harry would. I'm sorry I pulled your hair earlier, Harry whispered against Draco's knuckles. It was an awful kiss. I can't sleep thinking how stupid I was. I've been worried about Mr Weasley, of course, but I can't stop thinking of that either. Please just tell me you aren't angry. An awful kiss, Draco echoed, trying not to get offended and wake the house up. Were he and Harry talking about the same kiss? Was it? In that case, I need to apologise. No, I mean me, I was awful, I didn't know what I was doing. Harry babbled, letting Draco's hand go. That's all I was saying, not you, not the kiss, that wasn't, wasn't awful at all. What were we talking about? Apparently, Draco drawled, 
you were giving me a performance review and I was coming up wanting. Do let me know if you have any tips that could have made it less awful. I'm apparently in shocking need of edification. I didn't mean it like that, Harry protested. Really, you, you were incredible at it. Your lips were so, so, so... Draco repeated, and watched Harry rake a hand through his hair. So what? What are my lips? Um, Harry said desperately, and then there were footsteps on the stairs. It's Remus, Draco said, recognising the steady plodding tread. He'll be mad if we're not in bed. Draco led them back inside, where he, at least, slept. Mr Weasley was obviously going to be fine. Draco couldn't see what all of the fuss had been about. Honestly, a part of him had to be resentful. Oh, Nagini had been merciful with this notorious blood traitor. But when it came to Severus, the best and bravest man that had ever lived, she had to be on point. Nagini? More like Nigiri, for how Draco would preferably make use of her. He'd eaten snake before. Tasted like chicken, but never raw. Sashimi, maybe, with some avocado and eel sauce. Was Draco getting hungry, waiting for the Weasleys and Harry to finish their sentimental visit? It was hard work trying not to look tonks or moody in the eye. They couldn't have thought of two worse order members to escort Draco for his own mental health. Granted, Draco hadn't actually had run-ins with the real Moody in either timeline, but Crouch had been a damn good actor. It was hard not to think the man before him wouldn't turn to him at any moment and start talking about how his wand had tortured the sanity out of the Longbottoms. Eventually, Mrs Weasley opened the door again, hustling students out and the auras in. Really? What was the point of me coming to visit? Draco called after her. You can go and say hello once they have, Draco, dear. She called before the door closed. Fred looked none too pleased to be ejected before the real business was to be discussed. Fine, he said. Be like that. Don't tell us anything. I didn't miss much then. Fred and George produced their extendable ears and gave one to Harry. No, you two tell me, Draco ordered, not wanting to put the younger ones through repeating anything grisly. So Ginny and Ron picked up the twins' strings and they turned and began recounting the details of the visit. The most ominous detail was the special venom in Nagini's bite, which the doctors at St Mungo's were still working to counteract. So Mr Weasley's wounds were still bleeding and he had to take constant blood-replenishing potions, but it sounded like that should be solved eventually, if not in time for Christmas. Draco wished he had insight to offer on the topic, but really, he hadn't seen Nagini strike and leave her victims alive very long after. This was uncharted territory for him as well. He tried resolutely not to think of how Severus had died, and whether it had been ever-bleeding wounds from venom to do him in, rather than something direct and instantaneous like. Always bleeding wounds like Severus's spell. Sectum Sempra, always cut. That was how Severus had ended up. Draco began to laugh, even as he felt an unsteady feeling pulse through him, tears coming to his eyelids and fingers beginning to buzz at the tips. I think I'm going to be sick, Draco gasped. Where? Is there a bathroom? Never mind, I'll find one. Or a convenient potted plant if the impending fit ended in puking. What the hell? George complained. Wouldn't have thought you of all people would be this squeamish. Over just a description, Fred said, grinning ear to ear. Imagine if he actually had to see some poor old bastard laid out in the ground, bleeding to death with unclosable wounds. Fuck off, Draco growled, and bolted as fast as he could. None of the eavesdropping Gryffindors noticed. He ran down a set of stairs, rearing and unsteady, and saw the words spell damage in large letters which sounded good enough to him. He was panting for breath, 
and he tried breathing exercises until he saw a family walking past. He fled inside the ward, running until he was behind a corner. Then he sank to the ground, letting himself start to cry. He cast a muffliato, then set his wand on his knees and buried his face against it. You're okay, Draco said to himself, pressing his nose into the bend of the talon wand to ground himself. You're gonna be okay. But even as his chest began to feel less tight, his limbs less outside his control, the wand seemed to warm against his face, not just from the heat of his own skin. He pulled away, but it pulsed the same, until Draco might have feared it would burn him, if he'd been in a state to particularly care about that eventuality. Instead, he kept his face to it, and damn if it branded this young face that Severus was right to call him so vain for. Severus. Harry felt a tug, like the pull of Avon Seguium activated. He wondered if Harry had come to find him. He'd last cast the spell on the golden ring before the third task, naively thinking that even if Harry did end up kidnapped, there was no way Draco would be with him. He hadn't activated it himself, and he didn't think Harry would be wearing it. He hadn't seen it on his hand once since the graveyard, but he thought the pull might be Harry, so he followed. Even when he saw that it was leading him towards a closed ward and he had to spell the doors open, he followed. He snuck through the Janus Thicky ward, which seemed to be for permanent spell damage. Hey, Draco asked the first person he saw, a woman with her whole head covered in fur. Does Gilderoy Lockhart live here? He thought he remembered hearing that, except no. Lockhart hadn't been obliviated in the red line. She barked in response. Draco jumped back, only to bump into another bed. There was a pale man with a passing resemblance to Severus, staring at the ceiling, mumbling to himself. Draco stumbling against his bed didn't draw his attention, or even interrupt his mumbling. But a sound came from another room of a cheerful, maternal voice, and then a flash of lime-green healer robes coming out. Oh, poor dears, has somebody fallen? Draco ducked behind the mumbling man's bed. She looked around quizzically before heading to what was probably her break room. The minute she was gone, Draco followed the tug towards the end of the room, closing a set of flowery privacy curtains before him to hide him from view should the witch return. His breath slowed, and he whispered, Harry, as he felt the tug stop. But what had felt like the draw to some incomplete, selfish form of salvation proved instead the transformation of the world, from imagined nightmares to the completed article. The woman he stood above had been sleeping, but his voice calling for Harry Potter awakened her. She sat up slowly, her limp, dry white hair in wisps around her face, making her look far older than her skin would suggest. But her eyes were old, dark and sunken in her gaunt face, as if there was the accumulated weight of centuries balanced upon the pupils, forcing them backwards into her skull. He had hardly seen a more haunted-looking woman, even counting actual ghosts. He presumed this patient was alive, and yet there was almost something familiar about her. She opened her mouth, and Draco presumed she was about to tell him how they knew each other, but no sound came out. "'Did you summon me?' Draco asked, turning to the other bed where a man was sitting in his hospital gown, staring motionlessly at the wall. When he turned at Draco's voice, he had the same prematurely aged look, the same sunken hopelessness to his dark eyes. But that wasn't what made Draco cry out and clamp his hand over his mouth, dropping his wand to the floor. He recognised this man. He was far thinner than the photograph Draco had seen, as was the woman. But in the husband, the family resemblance was unmistakable, especially having seen his son at eighteen in the blue loop, almost grown up. There was no mistaking it. This was Neville Longbottom's father. Draco stared from his wand on the floor back up to the Longbottoms. 
Neither had gotten out of bed, nor had either spoken. Then Mrs. Longbottom's mouth was still moving without making a sound. Then she had stretched out a hand towards Draco, and though she was metres away with no sign of getting up, Draco fell down from scrambling away from her so hard. He landed with his feet on his wand, kicking it and making it skid beneath the beds. His back hit the curtains, stretching it. He heard himself take a deep, shuddering breath, knowing them unmistakably now. He'd just been thinking of their photograph in Mad-Eye Moody's hands being forced to identify them. He had been imagining the fall of Severus in the future, when Neville's world had fallen apart a long time ago, and the remnants were waiting here like revenants, accusation in their empty eyes. Though that had to be Draco himself imagining it. Neither of them seemed sane at all or even truly aware. Neither was moving towards him. But Mrs Longbottom still had her hand raised, fingers outstretched in the air now terrible and beseeching, for what he could not know. It felt for all the world like he was the one who had done this to them, the one who had put them there, and this was his fault. This was the meaning of his stolen power. Draco scrambled beneath their beds on their metal rails and dove for the talon wand. He was so panicked he put it back in the wrong pocket and his hand caught against the moonstone dagger. He stared at it, spellbound for a moment, thinking of the two lives it had cost him to acquire this, for Mac Periander and his augury maledictus, whom he was almost certain had been a maledictus and once human before, so that was a second and third murder after Pettigrew. Here in front of him, Frank and Alice Longbottom felt like another pair. He just left the dagger stained in his pocket, not caring about the blood that smeared along the talon wand as his trembling fingers let it go. He forced himself to leave the shallow slash across his palm as he climbed back to his feet, forced himself to peer around the curtain and be sure the coast was clear, before walking out as steady and calm as if he had every right to be there. Then he cast Severus's vulnerous senental spell on his hand. He watched the cut close as if in a dream not even sure whether he was breathing. Draco. Voices were calling from above and Draco went up the stairs mechanically. This time it was Harry's voice, so he knew that the pull was not what he had imagined. Hey, Draco said weakly. Sorry, I just got freaked out by the twins being dickholes. Maybe I can wait and visit Mr Weasley the next time or when he gets out. We'll be back on Christmas if he isn't out by then, Mrs Weasley said, eyes shooting daggers at the protesting twins. You can see him then, no worries, Draco, let's go. He felt like he could have used someone else's hand to check his own mouth for fangs. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Draco Malfoy and the Talon Brand, part five of the Mirror of Isidaru series by Star Bridget.